Today, the Matt Wall Show, BLM never went away. It just rebranded. Now it's back on the street marching under the Free Palestine banner. Also, the thugs who mowed down a retired police chief have been in court this week laughing and having a grand old time. What would be the most just way to handle these teenage killers? We'll discuss. And the state of Oregon is getting rid of their academic requirements in public school. Now you can graduate whether you learned anything or not. Plus, fewer adults will be wearing Halloween costumes this year. I'll talk about why that is a rare good sign for society. All of that and more today on The Matt Wall Show. Pure Talk recently announced that they would uh, alleviate $10 million in veteran debt by Veterans Day. Thanks to your support, they are 53% to that goal with two weeks to go. Think about this. The U.S. military is made up of 100% volunteers. These are men and women who willingly sacrifice everything they have for this country. When they're done serving, they return home to a tight job market and outrageous living expenses. That's why I'm so happy a private company like Pure Talk has jumped in to help. When you switch to Pure Talk's lightning-fast 5G network, they'll donate a portion of every new order to this noble cause. You can make a real difference just by choosing superior cell phone service. Pure Talk's plans start at just 20 bucks a month, offering unlimited talk, text, more data, and a mobile hotspot. Just go to puretalk.com Walsh and make the switch. Let's rally together and show unwavering support for our veterans. Visit puretalk.com Walsh and switch to Pure Talk t- today. It's the right move, and it's the American way. That's puretalk.com slash Walsh today. Well, you know the presidential election season is officially underway in the United States when mobs begin filling the streets of every major city, chanting genocidal slogans and attacking police officers. This is the norm uh, during an election year in places like Lagos, and now we've imported that wonderful tradition here. You don't need to check your calendar or wait for the national political conventions. When you see the mobs, you know the campaign has started in earnest. Three years ago, the catalyst for these mobs, of course, was the overdose of George Floyd in Minneapolis. This time around, the mobs have sprung into action in response to the war in Israel. Now, at least on the surface, it's hard to think of two grievances that have less in common with one another. You'd probably assume that they're completely unrelated. And indeed, if you watch news coverage of these demonstrations, your assumption would only be reinforced. So here, for example, was ABC's coverage of the recent protests in New York. Watch. Now, ahead of the expected ground invasion, there were widespread pro-Palestinian rallies around the world today, from Chile to Indonesia, Ecuador and Brazil. Hundreds of thousands sent a message to stop the bloodshed. In the United States, no different. Houston, Atlanta, even in our nation's capital, they all saw major demonstrations. Here at home, A huge rally in Brooklyn lasted for hours, and we followed the demonstrators as the day gave way to night. As Eyewitness News reporter Anthony Carlo shows us, the mostly peaceful scenes ended with clashes and several arrests. Chaos and clashing at nightfall on the streets of Brooklyn. Police say more than a dozen people arrested during a pro-Palestinian demonstration. NYPD cops pushing protesters back and ordering them out of the roadway. The rally continuing into the night with tensions eventually flaring between cops and demonstrators. We are on the sidewalk, keep pushing us. And that was not all that flared. 
the protests starting hours earlier Saturday and much more peaceful, with thousands taking to the streets of Bay Ridge, many marching for a ceasefire in the Middle East. So many of the demonstrators are marching for a ceasefire, says the reporter, as the footage shows signs calling for Israel to be wiped off the face of the map. And that's uh, a little confusing. That's your first clue that you're not getting the most honest assessment of what's happening at these protests and where they're likely to lead. In any event, the gist of the ABC report is that New Yorkers are mainly concerned about the Middle East. They're not using the conflict over there as a proxy for anything that they want to inflict on Americans in this country. Fortunately, we don't have to rely on ABC News and their version of events. Independent journalists have been documenting the demonstrations uh, in New York, especially as well. Brennan Stoltz is one of those journalists. And what his reporting makes clear is that if you look closer at these protests, they're hitting pretty much the same notes that we saw three years ago with BLM. Uh, they also bear a striking resemblance in some ways to protests over the end of Roe v. Wade, protests against, the, uh, against parental rights laws. The other night, for example, Stoltz shot this footage of a protest organized by Gays for Gaza and Queers for Palestine, and this was in various locations in New York, particularly in Manhattan. Watch. On the count of three. One, two, three. Israel! And we understand that Palestinian liberation is black liberation. I know that a lot of these people have good hearts, but they're like riding this wave that is not based on the facts of the history of this region, and it breaks my heart. The occupation has got to go, hey, hey, oh, oh, the occupation has got to go, hey, hey. Take the street. It's very sad because people don't So Palestinian liberation is black liberation, says the guy with the megaphone. Queer rights, trans rights, they chant in front of a banner reading Queers for Liberated Palestine. Another man held a sign reading Reproductive Justice Means Free Palestine. It's worth emphasizing uh, that slogan for just a second. So here it is in all its glory. Uh, and you could just look at it there. And it's, it's what we see is it's not just one guy in Brooklyn who came up with that sign and decided to run with it. Several people are holding that banner. Many people are marching behind it. And behind them is a sign reading Lesbians for Liberation. This was a massive event. You know, we're not cherry picking here. Leftists in New York really came out with a mishmash of every slogan we've heard from the left over the past few years, only with Palestine tacked on at the end. They're just kind of changing the order of the words around a little bit and finding a new way to tie them all together. Never mind that reproductive justice makes no sense conceptually and then makes even less sense when you realize that to them, reproductive justice means the execution of infants. The most confusing of all on the surface is what the hell abortion has to do with anything happening in the Middle East right now. Of course, a lot of conservatives have pointed out the obvious contradictions in using these slogans uh, in Gaza, homosexuality is illegal. Showing up in Gaza with any of these banners means that uh, you could probably look forward to being thrown off a rooftop or, if you're lucky, getting jailed for a decade. There's also no tolerance in Gaza for what these people are calling reproductive justice, which, again, is just killing your own child. So uh, there is no ideological alignment between Hamas 
and gays for Gaza, to put it mildly. Hamas is not a left-wing organization. They also would not qualify as a right-wing organization. They largely exist outside of the Western left-right paradigm. Yet the left has found it useful to filter this conflict between Hamas and Israel through that paradigm, and they've done it in a way that is inevitably totally incoherent. But pointing out these contradictions accomplishes nothing on its own because these protesters are aware of them for the most part. I mean, they're ignorant, but they're not that ignorant. They know that they wouldn't survive a day in Gaza, and that's why none of them are in Gaza right now. So why are they demonstrating for Hamas, especially after they just committed a series of brutal murders? What, what are these left-wing activists getting out of it? It begins to make sense when you realize that this phenomenon, as strange as it might seem, isn't exactly new. Some of the most vocal proponents of BLM, like George Soros, Barack Obama, Kamala Harris, who literally organized a bail fund for the rioters, they understood that they, they needed to live far far away from where all the BLM foot soldiers uh, exist and, and where they're causing all the damage. There's a reason Barack Obama lives on Martha's Vineyard and not in Larry Krasner's Philadelphia or downtown Kenosha. It's the same reason why the vast majority of liberal women with BLM uh, lawn signs live in the suburbs instead of the inner cities. So the point is that this desire to promote a murderous ideology one that, if unleashed worldwide, would kill a lot of people, including leftists, is, uh, is not unique to the current war in the Middle East. It tells us something fundamental about how leftists think. Specifically, it exposes how heavily they rely on abstraction rather than practical thinking informed by real-life consequences. As Chris Ruffo pointed out the other day, leftists have long been enamored with the idea of the noble savage, right? Especially the noble savage who resist the tyranny of the white oppressor. And they see Hamas fighters, like BLM rioters, as a physical manifestation of the many anti-American concepts that they've been taught in school. These barbarians are the decolonizers, the anti-oppressors. They are the answer to whiteness in all of its forms. The left will humanize its allies, like George Floyd, uh, and rioters, and Hamas terrorists, but they will abstract their enemies as oppressors and agents of white supremacy and then celebrate their destruction and murder. The precise vehicle for this destruction isn't what matters. I mean, that's why many of the same organizations and politicians who fervently supported the BLM riots a few years ago are backing Hamas now, using pretty much the same lingo. Take the Democratic Socialists of America, or DSA, for example. After Hamas launched its attack on Israel, the DSA held a rally in New York City to show, quote, Solidarity with the Palestinian people and their right to resist. Attendees at the rally chanted, resistance is justified when people are occupied. The DSA also said that Hamas, uh, the Hamas attack was, was not unprovoked. And here's what their rally looked like. Now, we've seen 
all this before. Coincidentally enough, the DSA used similar language three years ago. They claimed that corporations, landlords, and billionaires were looting and repressing black neighborhoods. They said that they would fight for a, quote, liberated future. Several of the politicians backed by the DSA have made public statements along these lines. Rashida Tlaib, for example, called for resistance against law enforcement, including immigration officers and local police. She wrote at the time, we will resist and win. We must resist police brutality. Saying a lot of similar things now about what's happening in Israel, where Rashida Tlaib is. Many other left-wing organizations follow this pattern. They supported BLM. Now they support Hamas for the same reason. Take the Palestine Solidarity Committee, or PSC, for example. That's the Harvard student group that wrote the letter saying that Israel was entirely responsible for the attack on its own civilians. Now, if you go to the PSC's website now, you'll find that they've basically shut the whole thing down. They've prevented the public from viewing it, but archived versions of the PSC's website show Uh, predictably enough, that they saw direct parallels between BLM and the Middle East. One blog post on the PSC's website from 2020 was entitled, quote, Moral Consistency from Minneapolis to Jerusalem. Here's how it begins, quote, We must abolish these racist regimes. In the U.S., as in Israel, attempts to reform these systems have proven futile. Again and again, left-wing groups have drawn this parallel. At the height of the BLM riots, a representative for the Labor for Palestine Party in New York put it this way, quote, so there's the intifada in Palestine and what is essentially a domestic intifada in this country now, though it's usually not called by that name. There's a growing understanding that these resistances are connected and that the right to resist is connected. So whether you listen to politicians or socialist groups or student organizations or protesters in New York, the message is pretty clear. The pro-Hamas movement in America that's taking over major cities as we speak, is effectively BLM reincarnate. Hamas itself is not BLM reincarnate. As established, Hamas would very much object to many of the stated goals of the BLM organization, such as, for example, dismantling, quote-unquote, heteronormativity. I don't think that Hamas is interested in dismantling that, whatever that is exactly. But in this country, it's a different story. And the activists have admitted that the two things to them— uh, are, are you know, sides of the same coin. They are an extension of the same idea. It's a connected resistance movement. The same people are supporting both movements because they perceive the enemy to be the same in both cases. For leftists in America, for all their talk about moral Im- ambiguity and various forms of fluidity and, you know, everything is ambiguous, everything is fluid, really, although they say that, for them, everything is actually black and white in a very literal sense. Because they see every social conflict in terms of white people oppressing non-white people. In the Middle East, they simply side with the group that is less white. For no other reason than the fact that they are less white. As a get-out-the-vote effort for Joe Biden's party, uh, this latest resistance movement, we must say, uh, probably will not work as well as BLM did. And that's because, in part, in recent days, a lot of liberals have been Uh, you know, getting cold feet about some of this and have been shocked to discover that their so-called allies actually want them dead. Wealthy donors have pulled funding from universities like UPenn and Harvard, where students are embracing Hamas. Democrats are issuing statements denouncing members of their own party, which almost never happens. But what they haven't done and what they probably will never do is recognize that we all saw something very similar unfold three years ago. Political leaders and corporate media outlets, uh, they don't want you to see that connection but it's impossible to deny. And if this free Palestine stuff doesn't play in America the way BLM did initially, and so far it certainly isn't playing that way, 
then you should expect to see a pivot in the not-too-distant future. We're primed, we are definitely primed for, and we can see it now, we're primed for another round of mass looting and rioting. They may have to search for a different catalyst, though. Ultimately, they'll probably circle back to police brutality as the pretense, like they always do. But either way, sad to say, from the look of things, we're in for a very violent and deadly election year ahead. Now let's get to our five headlines. Grand Canyon University is an affordable private Christian university based in Phoenix, Arizona. They're dedicated to making education fit into your already busy schedule, which is why they offer 270 of their academic programs online. From scholarships to academic support, GCU's graduation team provides you with the personal support you need to obtain your goals. GCU's online programs offer you the freedom to earn your degree on your own time from wherever you are. GCU is praised for its culture of community giving and impact. They integrate the free market system and welcoming Christian worldview into all of their academic programs. Achieve your goals with a personalized plan and a supportive team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University, private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. That's gcu.edu. So uh, you probably remember those two scumbag thugs who went for a joyride and intentionally ran into a guy on a bicycle who happened to be a retired police chief, and they killed him in the process. Well, now they're appearing in court, and uh, their behavior is exactly what you would expect from scumbag thugs. Uh, Here's a report about that. Trying to mad dog us and intimidate us, which didn't work. Jesus Ayala and Jameer Keyes smiling at the widow and daughter of Andy Probst as they leave the courtroom Tuesday. The teens are accused of intentionally hitting the 64-year-old retired California police chief. They're charged with murder and additional felonies in connection with an August 14th crime spree. Police say they also hit this 72-year-old cyclist that morning. He survived. A trial now scheduled for September of next year. These guys, they did not respect the court whatsoever. The teens appear to communicate with each other, at times covering their faces and also laughing. I'm I'm not scared. You are. A hundred percent. On Monday, we obtained police body camera video showing the moment after Ayala was taken into custody. You think this juvenile will do something? I'll be out like 30 days. Just a game to them, like... They don't they really don't care if anyone else lives or dies. They don't care about themselves if they live or die. And that can just be shown through their own actions. Who do you think failed here leading up to this? A multitude of different people failed, but I think ultimately the parents on all ends. They're the ones who failed. Taylor and Crystal Probst say they'll continue to come to court for the teen's appearances to seek justice and to put a face on the victim of the teen's alleged crime. Crystal wears this Apple Watch her husband was wearing when he was killed. Taylor and her brother received an alert on that fateful day. It reminds me he's here with me in the courthouse. Okay. Um, you know, the media keeps calling these, uh, these guys teens, and they are teens. One is 18, I believe the other is uh, 16. Um, but I'm telling you right now, that should not matter in this case. Both of these people... Um, need the death penalty, and I don't care how old they are. Uh, They have nothing to offer society. It it is, there there should be a one-strike-and-you're-out policy for certain things. And uh, running over somebody intentionally and killing them and then laughing about it, that's got to be a one-strike-you're-out. 
You're just done. We don't, we don't need you uh, in the human species anymore. You don't serve any purpose. And um, we can't do anything with it. Like, we, we can never release these uh, people back into society ever again. Spending years in prison is not going to make them less dangerous, right? For the same reason that you don't make, a, I don't know, a piece of chicken less salty by marinating it in soy sauce. Like, when, when you take a violent thug and marinate him in an environment with other violent thugs, chances are he will only become more violent and thuggish at the end of it. So you can't release them. Does that mean society now has a duty to feed and clothe and house these two monsters for the next 60, 70 years? No, that's absurd. The, the most just and sensible thing here is to put them in front of a firing squad, uh, put them down like dogs, and bury them in unmarked graves and forget that they ever existed. Like you don't even get, well, the, uh, the victims, families don't have the privilege of forgetting these people exist, but society, like you don't get to be remembered. You don't even get to have a name when you die. You're just, you failed at everything. You failed at life. You failed at everything. You're done. Have fun in hell. That's, that's, that really is how it should be handled. And um, not only that, but it should be live streamed too, you know, make it public. And I know there are people who will hear what I'm saying right now, and they'll kind of shake their head and, and they'll say, oh, that's so cruel. They're just kids. But I don't think it is cruelty. You know, I, I think it's justice. Cruelty would be the death penalty for a crime that does not warrant it. That would be cruelty. Okay, If they had only been speeding and then we put them to death for that, that would be cruelty. But this does warrant it. And so it's justice. And I actually think that cruelty... Like what is really cruel is being lenient on monsters like this. Okay, that is what is cruel. And uh, I think those of us who advocate real justice in the form of the death penalty need to start, you know, we, we tend to concede sort of the compassion argument to the other side. Almost like we're saying, well, yeah, you want to be compassionate, but we want justice. I'm saying it's the one and the same. It's one and the same. It's actually not compassionate at all to advocate for a system where people do not get what they deserve for the crimes they've committed. And for me, like ultimately, it's as simple as that. If you get in a car and you plow and you run somebody over, run two people over, actually, kill them. One of them you kill. The other one you tried to but didn't. And then you laugh about it. it do you deserve to be put in front of a firing squad or not? Like any, are you going to tell me they don't deserve it? Of course they deserve it. And giving people what they deserve is literally the definition of justice. That is justice. Giving someone what they deserve is justice. Uh, and to me, it is cruel when you are too afraid to administer justice, when you allow this kind of mockery to continue. Um, a failure or refusal to make violent criminals suffer for their crimes, that is cruelty. It's cruelty to the, to the victims' families. It's cruelty to the victims themselves. It's cruelty to the future victims who will, become, who, will, who will become victims in the future at the hands of other violent criminals who are emboldened by the kid glove treatment. I mean, you heard from one of those guys bragging in the, in the cop car, and wait, I'm going to be out in 30 days. Okay, so it's just, it is a fact that our lenient system is, is encouraging more crime. 
Because the, the criminals themselves aren't stupid. Well, they may be stupid, but they're not so stupid that they, that they, that they uh, aren't like aware of the world, the society they live in. They see what's going on. They see how people commit heinous, violent crimes and end up back on the street. And so they say to themselves, well, I'll do the same thing. There's, there's no consequence for my actions. So it's cruelty to allow this to continue. It's, it is cruelty to society in general to allow this because society craves and needs justice. And when you've got um, two people who commit a heinous crime like that, the most morally correct way to respond is, is first of all, to wipe that grin off of their faces. Like, as a society, we should not allow that. You're going to sit in the, in the courtroom and laugh at the victim's families, and we allow that? No, what we should be saying to them is, oh, you think this is funny? Is it funny to you? Well, let's see if you're still laughing with a noose around your neck. Okay? You put the noose around their neck, and you say, is it still funny to you? You're still having a good time with this, huh? But to simply allow this spectacle, to allow criminals to make a mockery of the whole system and of their own crimes... And to make light of it, it's just untenable. Like it is untenable. It, and it, it is untenable cruelty. So you're so worried about not being cruel to these, to this gutter trash. You're so so worried about, but well, don't be cruel to them. And so we're cruel to everybody else who has to live in a world where these kinds of beasts are uh, are emboldened. I tell you what, we, we we could solve so many problems in our in uh, in our society. We could make many of our cities livable like overnight. Public executions, hard labor. Put those two things in place, and things start getting better in a hurry. Okay. Because I tell you something, what the the uh, we heard from the daughter there, and she correctly points out that this is a failure of parenting. Uh, that that those kids' parents. I hesitate to call them kids, but the teens' parents obviously have totally failed. The parents are like, they should go to jail too. Uh, parents are totally worthless. But I think she was wrong about one thing because she said that, um, she said, well, they don't care. They don't value anyone else's life, that she's right about that. But she said they don't, they don't care if they live or die. And uh, I think they do because I, I, I think they do care if they live or die because everyone does. That, that, that's hardwired. Right, that's biologically hardwired. That's ingrained. You care if you live or die, uh, you, you know, and, and you can't you can't really get past that. So they they do care. It's just that it's it doesn't even occur to them that their own lives are at all in jeopardy here. But I tell you something: you pass down a death penalty sentence on them, and you're gonna see, they're not gonna be smiling. They will not smile in face of that. They will not. But of course, I'm sitting here talking about what should have. Like none of this, it, it's it's just it makes it all seem more and more futile because you realize everything I'm saying. It's just it, none of it's actually going to happen because we don't live in a world with justice. And so the the sad reality is that that 16 year old now he thinks he's going to be out in 30 days. That's not going to happen. It is extremely plausible that he could be out by the time he's 25 or 30 or earlier than that. Um, all right. Fox News has this report. High schoolers in Oregon uh, won't need to demonstrate basic competency in writing, reading, uh, or math in order to graduate for at least five more years because, according to education officials, such requirements are unnecessary and dis disproportionately harm students of color. 
Oregon uh, gubernatorial candidate Christine Drazen said, at some point, our diploma is going to end up looking a lot more like a participation prize than an actual certificate that shows that someone actually is prepared to go pursue their best future. The essential skills requirement has been on pause since the coronavirus pandemic. And last week, the Oregon State Board of Education voted unanimously to continue suspending the graduation requirement. Under the requirement, 11th graders had to demonstrate competence in essential subjects through a standardized test or work sample. Students who failed to meet expectations were required to take extra math and writing classes in their senior year in order to graduate. Board members said the standards were unnecessary and harmed marginalized students since higher rates of students of color, students with disabilities, and students learning English as a second language ended up having to take the extra step to prove they deserved a diploma. Uh, here's a local news report about this. For the next five years, high school students in Oregon will not need to perform proficiency tests showing mastery of reading, writing, or math in order to graduate. And this comes as the Oregon Board of Education unanimously voted to extend a pause on the graduation requirement yesterday until 2028. They're citing inefficiency and inequity. Joelle Jones going beyond the headlines tonight to find out what this pause will mean for students. This is a controversial decision and one that's facing a lot of pushback. While some say the decision will lower state standards and cheapen an Oregon diploma, the Oregon Department of Education tells me this policy simply didn't work and disproportionately harmed students of color. Yes, uh, students of color are having a hard time learning, and so the solution is to give up on requiring them to learn. It, 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 it's exactly the same as saying that, like, I don't know, a disproportionate number of black people are failing to wear their seatbelts. And so we're going to remove seatbelts completely from vehicles as a solution to that. It's a solution that doesn't make sense if you try to understand it as a solution. But once you realize that it's not meant to be a solution, you could start to make a bit more sense of it. Um, they aren't trying to solve anything. They don't care if the kids learn or not. And many kids are not learning. And, uh, and they don't care. They, they just don't care. And here's the thing. I, I, to me, there's a little bit of a, of a nuance in this conversation because, you know, when you hear about, and this is not the first time we've heard about standardized tests and so on being, uh, being uh, they get rid of the standardized tests or put it on pause, put it on hold. Um, there's been kind of a movement in that direction in many school districts across the country. But I think we should acknowledge that standardized tests are already a really poor way of judging a student's aptitude and grasp on the subject matter. Standardized tests have their own problems, which are really quite significant. Uh, when you have standardized tests, you end up with teachers that are teaching to the test, which means that you're trying to get kids to memorize certain bits of information because that's all that these tests really can measure. All they measure is whether a student has memorized stuff. Uh, memorization and regurgitation are what these tests are for. That's what the tests test for, right? But memorization is not the same thing as learning. Memorization is not absorption. Like you, want, you want kids to absorb the information, uh, comprehend it. Memorization is not comprehension, not necessarily. And there can be plenty of kids that that really do grasp the fundamental subject matter, uh, may, may more than grasp it. They may really excel in the subject. And yet when it comes to like memorizing certain data points and just repeating them, they, they may not be very good at that because that is sort of a, that is a, a skill unto itself. 
being able to memorize stuff is a skill. And it's a nice skill to have. But the way that our school system has been structured, it's like, that if you don't have that skill, then you're screwed. Um, when it shouldn't really be about that particular, that's one particular skill set that shouldn't be what it's all about. Uh, you know, really the best way to measure a student's actual understanding of the material is, in, in you know, and it's not the same for every class, but for, for the most part, um, perhaps with the exception of math, uh, and especially in the younger ages, like the, the one of the best ways to measure a student's actual understanding of the material in many classes is to have a conversation with them, right? That's how you could, if you just talk to someone about any subject, you can, especially if you yourself are versed in the subject, as teachers should be, then you can quickly tell whether they get it or not. Um, I can do this with my own kids. You know, my son really struggles with math. Just, just like I did as a kid. But just like me, he's great with uh, subjects like history. You know, he loves history. He loves that stuff. I was talking to him yesterday about, uh, about the Oregon Trail. And he hasn't even, they haven't even spent really much time on, they haven't gotten really to that lesson yet. Um, uh, but but he, I was talking about it. He gave a pretty good summary of what the Oregon Trail is, uh, just to, based on the little that he heard about it. And so I can tell by talking to him that history is a subject that he grasps. Um, but the problem is that this kind of, of personalized assessment isn't really possible in the school system. The school system always runs on factory settings. It is a factory, industrialized kind of way of educating. It's a, ma- it's a mass, it, you know, it's like mass assembly sort of uh, uh, assembly line approach to educating. Always on factory settings. Nothing personalized can happen. And that's not the teacher's fault because they've got 30 kids in a class and then they bring in another class and there's 30 kids in that class. So what are they supposed to do? So my point is that many of these measuring sticks that are used in public school are bad measuring sticks. They're not good. But what they're doing in Oregon and in other places is they are throwing out the measuring sticks entirely, which to me is obviously not the solution. So I'm saying that we should find better and more effective ways to measure a student's comprehension. But what they're saying is that they're not going to measure it at all. And the reason for not measuring it, it's the worst possible reason, which is this uh, racial disproportionate impact bullcrap. You know, so if if you had to place a Gorgon where they said, look, uh, standardized tests, they're not racist, obviously, but... They're, they're just not the, I, I don't, it's not the best way to figure out if, if students uh, are absorbing the information. And so we're going to do something else. We're, we're going to come up with a new system. Then I'd be all for that, depending on what the new system is, I suppose. But they're just discarding the system completely. And just going to graduate everybody, um, regardless of whether or not they, they grasp the material. Which is, again, it's the, it's the, the worst possible way to deal with this uh, problem. All right, here's a uh, fascinating story from Yahoo before we get into the next segment. Uh, Here's the headline. Are adults over Halloween costumes? Nearly two-thirds of Americans say they aren't dressing up, according to a new Yahoo YouGov poll. Experts explain why. Now, you got to love the experts, so they brought the experts in 
to explain why adults are not wearing Halloween costumes this year. I don't know what kind of, what, what, what field are these experts in? They're, they're experts in Halloween. So it's basically like, are the experts party city employees? Is that, are they, are, they, are they the experts? I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. The article says, Halloween is around the corner, but data from the latest Yahoo YouGov poll suggests that most U.S. adults won't be donning costumes for the celebration this year. According to the poll, while 22% are opting to dress up for the spooky holiday, 63% have chosen to skip out this season, while 14% have decided, uh, uh, haven't decided one way or another. Many of us must, must, uh, might find all the hoopla surrounding Halloween a bit debilitating for one reason or another. Dr. Shaina Ali, a mental health counselor and educator who's written about Halloween... Okay, now we know who the experts are. A mental health counselor and educator who's written about Halloween anxiety, which is a thing, says that whether someone loves it or hates it can often be a sign of something deeper. Ali tells Yahoo Entertainment, a big divider is if the person values Halloween. Some of those factors may be related to their upbringing, such as not being from a family who takes part, being part of a religion with strong beliefs against Halloween, or financial costs for those who don't have disposable income to spend on the holiday. Let's see. Childhood triggers aside, uh, they also say that this year can be especially tough for adults who find it hard to have fun while tragedies are actively occurring across the globe, such as the devastating Israeli-Hamas war. Okay. Sorry, there's, there's, there's nothing funny about what's happening uh, in the Middle East, but I can't help but laugh at the image of like a 32-year-old woman staring at her sexy Frankenstein costume and saying, no, I just can't this year. I just can't do it. Not while there's conflict abroad. Not with the conflict abroad. This is not the year to be sexy Frankenstein. Maybe regular Frankenstein. It's also funny that the article is painting the lack of adult participation in a child's holiday as some kind of sad thing. It's like, is it, they're, they're seeing it as some sort of bad sign about our culture. And this is actually one of the only good signs that we've seen in a long time. This, this is one of the only positive social developments that we have seen in our culture in decades. If adults aren't wearing costumes on Halloween, maybe it's because they're adults. Maybe that's the reason. Maybe it's because they're grown-ups. Maybe it's because we don't need to bring experts in, okay? I don't need Halloween experts. If you tell me that more and more adults aren't wearing costumes, then that would make me think, maybe I'm being optimistic, but that these adults have looked at a mirror and said, oh, I'm an adult. Oh, oh, you, oh, oh, I'm 46 years old. <laughs> and I've been wearing a Halloween costume this entire time. Man, that's embarrassing. Um, now, I don't wear a costume. It's not because I have Halloween anxiety or because I'm depressed about what's happening in Ukraine or something. It's because I'm a grown man. And it's because Hallow- costumes are for children. Halloween is a child's holiday. And if it goes back to being a child's holiday again, that's a good thing. It means that some semblance of sanity and order are being restored in our society in a a small way, but every bit counts. We still have a long way to go. I mean, if two-thirds of adults aren't dressing up, that means that one-third of adults are dressing up, and that's still way too high. And, you know, the numbers are still pretty... I mean, I I went the other day to the store uh, to get a costume for my son, and he had a costume already, but he doesn't like the one he has, so he wanted to get another one. This is how kids are on Halloween. I mean, you hear about Halloween anxiety. If you're, if you're an, adult, an adult with Halloween anxiety, then you need to grow the hell up. Kids do have Halloween anxiety, though, because the, the, the decision about what costume to wear for a kid is like, 
very, very important. And they, and they go, it's a torturous process of deciding. And they change their mind 46 times before the actual night. And, um, and I guess we spoil our kids a little bit because we actually buy them costumes. When I was a kid, the costumes were usually homemade. I've told my, kid that my kids this many times. It's, it's like my version of the, I walk to school, both hill, both, you know, uphill both ways kind of thing. My version is I had homemade costumes. They all heard, they've all heard my speech about the time when I was a kid and I wanted to be a knight in shining armor. armor. And, and, and uh, so my mom made me uh, a helmet out of a cereal box wrapped in tinfoil and put that on my head and said, you're a knight in shining armor. And then I go trick-or-treating and all night people are like, oh, that's a cute astronaut. And I say, oh, I'm an astronaut. I'm holding a sword. Okay, I get that the helmet's not exactly, it's not exactly historically accurate, but I'm an astronaut with a sword. And then later I realized I should have just been an astronaut with a sword because that'd be a way cooler costume to begin with. Anyway, so I took my kid uh, to get a costume and like 90% of the costumes were for adults. I actually had to search, okay? I had to search to find a costume that is for a kid. And most of those are just superheroes. So, like, it's, if you're a kid who doesn't want to be a superhero for, on Halloween, you know, you, you might, you're going to end up just with a cereal box on your head wrapped in tinfoil because there's nothing else. I mean, imagine going to the playground, okay, and, and you know, the excuse I always hear is, oh, well, it's fun. Adults are having fun. I don't care if adults are having fun. You're an adult. What kind of excuse is that? It's like if I, I go to the playground and... Imagine I have to go. To, I go to the playground. My kid has to wait in line for the plastic slide because there's a whole line of middle-aged men on the slide that are using it. You know, I think I would be within my rights to be annoyed by that and to say, "Get the hell off the playground equipment. That's for kids." And I don't want to. You know, if they turn around and say, "Whoa, we're just we're we're young at heart," no, you're not. You're forty. Go go. Go away. The, the adults are crowding the kids out of their own spaces, their own holidays, because the adults refuse to grow up. And my generation is the worst with this. Okay, we, we, we like refuse to relinquish anything. Comic books, superheroes, cartoons, Halloweens. We, Halloween, we, we won't give any of it up, right? We're going to bring all of that to the nursing home with us. We refuse to grow up. We just absolutely refuse because we don't understand that what the process here is that you enjoy things as a kid, you have your toys and all of your childlike fun, and then you have kids and you pass that on to them. You don't just cling on to it yourself your whole life. And then you get to relive it, okay? I get to relive Halloween. Like I, Halloween's kind of fun now as a parent. Not because I'm going trick-or-treating, but because now I am experiencing it through my kids, okay? That is how it's supposed to work. Anyway, so let the kids dress up and have their fun. That's the end of my, that's my uh, official Halloween speech for the, well, we've got a, still a week, so I've got more, there's more time for more speeches that we might get to. Let's get to Was Walsh Wrong. Satho Mestern says, aren't people getting tired of this silly, they're abusing your kids narrative? It's not that hard to go read any state CPS fact sheet. Kids are abused and neglected all the time. And there's no correlation whatsoever to LGBT people. When has Walsh talked about child homelessness? Um, first of all, uh, I would never say that LGBT activists are abusing my kids. 
because I won't let LGBT activists anywhere near my kids. So it's not that they're not, they're, they're not abusing everyone's kids. They're not abusing my kids, thank God. Uh, but they are abusing kids. They are abusing kids who don't have the protection of uh, a competent uh, adult around them. And unfortunately, that describes a lot of kids. And, and then, of course, there, there are many kids who, who have parents who are um, LGBT activists and proponents of trans ideology. And so they're being abused by their own parents. Now, uh, you are absolutely correct that none of this will register on the CPS fact sheet. And that's because it's a form of abuse that the state approves of. And it may shock you to learn that the state, and I know for someone like you, it probably is, this will blow your mind. You will not be able to believe this, right? But actually, the state can be wrong about things. Did you know that? They can be wrong. In fact, often they are. And and, and when you go go back even historically, you'll find all throughout history, all around the world, you'll find many forms of evil and brutality that were either approved by the state or even administered by the state, facilitated, funded by the state. This is a very common phenomenon, unfortunately. And in our country, uh, abusing kids in the name of trans ideology is approved by the state and facilitated and funded and enacted, in fact. The state participates in this this kind of abuse. So, right, uh, but since the state approves of it, they're not going to count that. Doesn't change the fact that when you've got a five-year-old boy and you tell him he's a girl and you dress him up like a girl, and then a few years later, you sterilize him with permanent life-altering drugs, that is abuse. I don't care what CPS says about it. It's abuse. Um, Mr. Reality says, Matt, I don't think you're necessarily wrong about the whoever is less white wins standard on the left. But can you explain why, if that's true, a white trans person wins over a straight black person? Uh, yeah, well, it, it, this is all, this always goes back. I'm sure you heard me talk about the victim, uh, the victimhood pyramid, the victim hierarchy, and it all goes back to that. And so, you know, I guess we should stipulate that in any conflict, the less white side uh, is the bad guy, absent any intersectional LGBT dynamics, okay? Uh, once you add that in, it changes everything. And this is, this is, this is the, uh, the mathematical equation of intersectionality, which is really itself, I mean, it's, it's convoluted, but it's, it's actually not that confusing to understand that uh, you know, white people are at the very bottom of the victimhood pyramid. You know, when it comes to victimhood claims, everyone else comes before them. And, uh, and then you've got so-called people of color, but then above that, you have, that's when you get into LGBT. So it's like whites all the way down here. And then, and then you've got pretty much all, all other races are sort of lumped together. Um, and then you've got LGBT. And at the very top of that pyramid, at the very top of LGBT, you have, the, you have the T. Okay. And they are the uber victims. And their victimhood claims come before anybody else. And they always win in the victimhood Olympics every time. Um, but... Even in the T, then you can break it down even further because, well, then what about, then you go back and you look at these other victimhood categories. Anyone who's in the T but can claim membership in some of those other victimhood categories too, that is going to elevate them even more, okay? So if you're, uh, that's why, correct, that LGBT is going to win over black, but black LGBT, that beats everything, all right? That's the way, that's the way that, that it works. I didn't make these rules. I'm just telling you what the rules are. 
Um, Will says, as someone on the fence about UBI, wouldn't it also help enable poorer traditional families? More kids equals more benefit and more parents could homeschool since they don't need to work in a regular job to survive. Uh, that's nice in theory. Uh, I wish that it worked that way, but it just doesn't. I don't think that there's any evidence, Will, that um, welfare and UBI is just a form of welfare. Um, I don't think there's any evidence that the welfare state, the entitlement state, um, enables or encourages traditional families. In fact, I think we see the exact opposite. I think if you look at communities and you see, you know, uh, you look at any community um, and you see the more that you have members of that community uh, dependent on welfare, uh, the less intact the nuclear family is in that community. Of course, in this country, the prime example of that would be the black community where the fatherlessness rate is sky high um, and also our rates of depending on welfare and and entitlements. And so it it just, it doesn't actually work that way. In fact, it works, it, it very much appears to work the opposite way. That the more you have people hooked on entitlements, um, the less you have stable households and marriages. Um, you certainly don't end up with homeschooling. You know, you don't you don't end up putting everybody on welfare. I don't think results in having a bunch of stable, intact homeschooling families. Uh, if it if there was any evidence that it would have that result then personally, I think there'd be something to talk about. But it doesn't have the result. In fact, it has the opposite result. And now it's time to bring an end to the 18-year-long nightmare of the case of Stephen Avery and the murder of Teresa Halbach. Don't miss the season finale of Convicting a Murderer tomorrow. You know the story, and now we're exposing the truth. Candace is finally bringing you answers to all the questions making a murderer created. Make sure you're caught up on episodes one through nine for the finale tomorrow because you're not going to want to wait to see what we've uncovered in the final episode. Here's a sneak peek at the season finale. Coming up on the finale of Convicting a Murderer. How were these filmmakers able to convince so many people that a man like Stephen Avery is innocent? The only story they wanted to tell was one of police corruption. They were committed to a story. She's doing a good job. She's doing a lot of investigations. They were looking into things for him. She knew more about the public defender and my uh, investigator. They were Stephen Avery's PR team. They convinced millions of people that they were innocent. Emails show that they were providing plenty of direction, that the Avery's were to look like a close-knit family. Manitowoc County officers were to look suspicious. I think I will forever be obsessed with the media's ability to turn a villain into a hero or a hero into the villain. If they could do it to me, they can do it to anybody else. Make sure you tune in. It's the last episode in this truth saga. Bravo to Candace for uh, doing amazing work and exposing media lies. You can binge all 10 episodes tomorrow, but only if you're a Daily Wire Plus member. So sign up today at dailywire.com slash subscribe to watch the entire series. Don't miss the season finale of Convicting a Murderer tomorrow. Sign up today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. For our daily cancellation today, we consult Fortune magazine, which reports that Gen Z, according to research, may be psychologically scarred by high inflation. Even worse, says this research, the damage may be permanent. Reading on, 
Gen Z's early careers uh, have been stifled by a number of challenges, from a once-in-a-generation pandemic and a war on European soil to spiraling living costs and recession fears that have led to widespread layoffs. But according to new research, the economic backdrop in which young people are entering the workforce could have a much deeper impact on Gen Z than a squeeze on their lifestyles. Dayo Abinusawa, founder of London's Awa Business School and a former lecturer at Cambridge University's Judge Business School, told Fortune on Monday that the ongoing battle with uh, inflation would have had a serious impact on the mindset of Gen Z workers, those under age, uh, those age 26 and under. Gen Z will be left with psychological scars from persistent inflation due to increased uncertainty and anxiety, he cautioned. A society where the young have little to no hope for the future is not a sustainable one. Not only will Gen Z be left with psychological scars, society at large will also feel the impact of those scars. So young people are not just dealing with a rocky economy, they are experiencing permanent psychological damage a terminal loss of hope, and a profound sense of unease and anxiety. Now, of course, we hear a lot about the anxiety of Gen Z these days. In fact, uh, The Hill just reported this month that Gen Z is the most anxious generation in history. And before Gen Z, we were told that millennials were the most anxious in history. Now, apparently, we have been unseated. We've been dethroned by Gen Z. Reading now from that report, a new report from data management firm Harmony Healthcare IT shows that 61% of Gen Z have a medically diagnosed anxiety condition. The report includes a survey of about 1,000 Gen Zers or adults aged uh, 18 to 26 who struggle with anxiety about their uh, anxious thoughts. And while experiencing anxiety is nothing new for Gen Z, uh, more than half of uh, survey respondents, 54%, said their anxiety has been worse this year. And out of those with anxiety, 43% said they experience a panic attack at least once a month, if not more frequently. The most common cause of their anxiety, the future. Almost uh, most of those surveyed have said the future was the, was the biggest worry, while 45% said it was finances. Almost one in three Gen Zers surveyed with anxiety said they used medication to help them manage the symptoms. Okay, 61% have been medically diagnosed with anxiety disorder. So think about that for a second. That's a, that's a staggering number, 61%. That is how anxious these young people are. And, and many of them are having panic attacks once a month. I don't even know what a panic attack is, I, 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 but, but they're, they're having them all the time. That's how anxious they are. It's how difficult their lives are, how terrible the situation that they find themselves in is. At least that's what we're supposed to believe anyway. And listen, there is no denying that the economy is in rough shape, right? Inflation is a major problem. The American dream is harder to attain for young people today than it was for boomers when they were this age. My parents' generation, they were able to trade like two pineapples and a bag of flour for a single family home with a half acre of land. And I may be slightly exaggerating, but the point is that a certain lifestyle was much easier to establish and maintain only a few decades ago. There's no denying that. And beyond the economy, it's also true that our culture is in, in bad shape. The situation abroad is even more volatile and so on. So there are challenges. There are difficult challenges. Nobody can pretend otherwise. That said, there is a real tendency to grossly exaggerate the difficulties that we face today. And it's not just Gen Z. In fact, I recently saw a viral meme that was uh, doing the, the, uh, the rounds on Twitter, and it has this whole uh, woe is me shtick except for millennials. And the meme shows Matthew McConaughey puffing on a cigarette with a shell-shocked look on his face, along with the caption, Millennials living through Y2K, 9-11, a plague, two economic recessions, and a possible World War III before they turn 40. Now, it's true that some of those things were hard. On the other hand, if you're including Y2K on your list of generational traumas, 
then it's clear that you're really trying to pad the stats. Because Y2K is famous for being an occasion where literally nothing happened at all. As for the rest of it, uh, you know, some of it, 9-11 especially, also the government response to COVID, uh, qualify as legitimately catastrophic. But if you take a couple of steps back, you can see that we have had it relatively easy by comparison. So consider, for example, that somebody born in 1910 would have, before retirement, lived through World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, the Spanish Flu, the Cold War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and a presidential assassination. That's only a partial list. Somebody born a century before that would have experienced two wars, or more like uh, 20 wars if you count all the Indian wars individually, before the Civil War, in which 2.5% of the country's population died. 2.5%, which is the equivalent of around 8 million American, American casualties today. So imagine like... Uh, the entire population of, of Virginia dying a horrible death in the span of four years, and you get an idea of the devastation. So um, my point is, is not to downplay our struggles today. It's to put them into perspective and to make the point that every generation of human beings who've ever lived have faced turmoil and tragedy. This is the price of admission into the human species. It's a condition of existing on the planet. And in fact, it remains the case that most generations of humans, perhaps only with the exception of the baby boomers, who had it really easy, but everybody else, you know, they, they have had, by any objective measure, a significantly more difficult time than us. Certainly, they have us beat when it comes to economic hardship, war, disease. I mean, you should thank God every day that you didn't happen to be born in France in the year 1340 a few years before the Black Death would proceed to wipe 200 million people off the face of the planet. I mean, imagine watching as everyone around you breaks out in festering, oozing boils before they eventually die in puddles of their own vomit and blood, only to soon suffer the same fate yourself. And then you'll get a pretty good idea of, of why you are, in many, many ways, incredibly blessed to have been born at a time when a bad cold is the only, quote, plague you've ever experienced. Now, again, the fact that hundreds of generations of humans have had lives that were something like a thousand times more difficult and arduous and brutal than ours, that doesn't make our own sufferings illegitimate. It just means that, that we should have perspective. And part of having perspective is realizing that no matter how hard you think you have it, you essentially live like a Roman emperor compared to almost everyone who's ever existed on the planet, and even compared to most of the people who currently exist on the planet. So then we have to ask, why is Gen Z so especially traumatized and psychologically scarred and anxiety-ridden? Sure, rent is too high, mortgages are too high, groceries are too expensive, but does that justify over half of an entire generation being diagnosed with an anxiety condition? Does that, does that justify monthly panic attacks? Does that justify uh, being dependent on psychiatric medicine to function? Like, it's not that bad, okay? It's just not. Now, those people in the past who endured hardship that Gen Z can't even begin to fathom, they didn't need anxiety medication. They had never heard of panic attacks either. Like, that didn't exist. Panic attacks are new. <laughs> That's, that didn't happen in the 1800s. Nobody was talking about panic attacks. So, so what's the problem? Is it that people today are just simply weak? Is it as simple as that? 
Well, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's as simple as that. That's actually what's happening. As a group collectively, we certainly do not experience more suffering or more hardship than humans of the past, but we are less able to deal with suffering and hardship. The cross that we carry is smaller. It's lighter, but our shoulders are not as broad and our backs are not as strong. And there are many reasons for this. We live in relative comfort and luxury, which has made us soft. We also, again, as a culture, are more secular, more nihilistic, more materialistic. And this has caused a kind of spiritual atrophy. It has made us psychologically brittle. But, um, and, and things like dealing with the reality of death is, I think, much more difficult for us because we are secular, materialistic, nihilistic. Uh, you know, we believe that we're going to die and, and, and fade into non-existence which I think makes death far more terrifying. Uh, anyway, so there's a lot going on, but underlying all of that is the uniquely modern assumption that life is supposed to be essentially pain-free. So we think that we are entitled to comfort, that we have the right to avoid suffering and hardship, and those are assumptions that our ancestors would have never made. Our ancestors encountered death and pain and suffering, and they said, well, this is what life is. It's not that they weren't sad about it, okay? They were sad, they were distraught, a family member dies, something terrible happens. But they said, this is what life is. Life is suffering. We encounter that sort of thing, much less of it, and we say, no, it's not supposed to be this way. It's not fair. It's not fair. This is not how life is supposed to be. You see all these videos of Gen Z people that are like in tears because they have to work nine to five now. In tears about it. It's not supposed to be this way. This is not how life is supposed to be. No one in history thought that way. Everyone in history said, well, of course you have to work. What else, what else are you going to do in life? It's life. What do you mean? It's, it's not, not fair. Not fair compared to what? Most of the anxiety and trauma and psychological scarring comes not from the suffering, but really from this refusal to suffer. This insistence that life owes us something else, something better. Which, in fact, when in fact it owes us nothing. Now, I'm not offering any kind of great insight here, but it's somehow an insight that has never occurred to a shockingly large number of people in modern culture. They have lived their whole lives without anyone responding to one of their complaints by saying, yeah, that's life, get over it. Stop crying, you sissy. I mean, that is a message we should all probably hear once a day. And if you're having a panic attack because you know, of inflation, like you, the best thing you could hear from someone is get it together. What the hell is wrong with you? Like, you need to be able to function. This is embarrassing. Once a day, we should probably all hear something like that. And if not once a day, then at least once in our lives. But plenty of young people have never heard that response from anyone. Every time they whine about something, it's so hard. All they ever hear is, yeah, it is so hard. It's so difficult. Yeah, tell me more about how you feel. What they really need, they need their feelings to be dismissed. At least every once in a while. Keeps you humble. And now they're crippled by paper cuts, and they're psychologically scarred by minor inconveniences. And this all means that eventually, and likely soon, we will actually experience the agonies of our ancestors. As the saying goes, weak men create hard times. And that is the point in the historical cycle that we have reached. And it is for that reason that these weak men are today canceled. That'll do it for the show today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. Have a great day. Godspeed.